Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Glad to be with you again. Lots of stuff going on in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Just a reminder, if you want to comment on the Facebook Live or Periscope feed, um, anything that's on your mind, like I said, in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. A couple things we're going to talk about today. I was very intrigued about some of the decisions that were made to uh, for by NFL teams to hire their next head coach. Obviously, they're all heading towards the same type of, I guess, prototype in regards to what they're looking for now. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, baseball, I'm putting a proposal out for the New York Mets, a team that seems to be trying to hit a certain budget, but also is expected to compete at a high level for the 2019 season. But the first thing that I wanted to start out by talking about, and obviously, you know, there's really only one time a year you get a chance to recap uh, a sport like college football and a big season with a lot of good teams and a lot of good players uh, comes to a crescendo as we hit the opening point here at a past ball show, cuckoo clock, the whole thing. You know, you have two 14 and zero teams going at it, a chance to do something that hadn't been done since the 1800s. And if you're a fair weather college football fan, the one thing that you're really looking for in a national championship game, no matter how it's set up, whether it's just one bowl that's going to do it, if it's the BCS playoff, the way it's set up, where you got the four best teams uh, playing kind of in a semifinal type of round, you want the national championship game to do two things. Number one, what I just said, feature the two best teams in the country going head-to-head. And absolutely, under no circumstance, were you disappointed with the matchup. Two 14-0 teams, two teams that, when it came down to it, were leaps and bounds above everybody else. So the matchup was right. You could talk about whatever team you want that you thought could be in the mix, and maybe a Georgia if they somehow beat Alabama in the SEC championship game. Notre Dame had a big season, but they got blown out by Clemson. So you knew right off the bat that you had the two best teams going up against each other on the biggest stage. Now, the other thing, obviously, you're hoping for, and it didn't work out this way, was a back-and-forth type of game, a classic type of game like we've seen over the last couple of years, whether it was Georgia leading Alabama and Alabama coming back by going to the likes of Tua Tagulavoa in the second half of the national championship game last year, or if you're looking at a couple of years before the performance that Clemson had in a back and forth game that really could have gone either way against Alabama, you certainly didn't see that. And you probably were disappointed if that's what it is that you were looking for. But I tell you, there were some really exciting things that ended up coming to the forefront in this game. And I think people, unfortunately, were looking for something different, maybe looking for Alabama. And I, I'll be honest, I look at Alabama and Alabama – in my opinion, following them and what they've done this season, I looked at them as the superior team. I looked at them as a team that I thought really should be double-digit favorites against just about anybody that they played. Now, saying that and watching the game, you couldn't be any more impressed with what you saw out of Dabo Sweeney and the Clemson Tigers. 
This was a team that, from a talent standpoint, certainly had it, but most importantly, they game-planned game their ass off to prepare for this game. And a couple things obviously come to the forefront, and I'm sure they've been broken down a million times, but you know, if you look at the defense of Clemson, which you figure was on par with that of Alabama, they were forcing Alabama to think about different things that they weren't considering before. And Tua, who looks like he's going to be a very solid NFL quarterback, is a guy that, you know, if you think about it from the landscape of the NFL, teams that don't necessarily have their big-time quarterback, they're hoping in a couple of years when Tua goes into the NFL draft, they could grab him and maybe he could be the next Steve Young. Maybe he could be a legitimate NFL quarterback, maybe the next Boomer Esiason or something like that. And obviously making those comparisons because he throws with the left hand. But, you know, you look at Trevor Lawrence and his performance for Clemson in a national championship game. And this is a guy that got absolutely no play during the regular season. Maybe the fact that he's 18, 19 years old and the quarterbacks that were getting to play, the Kyler Murrays that were winning the Heisman Trophy, guys like Will Greer, Dwayne Haskins, you know, Herbert, Justin Herbert. It, these other guys were getting all the attention. And obviously Tua coming into the game was the more prolific, was the more talked about quarterback coming into this game. And now, obviously, things have changed. And you look at this guy, Lawrence, and say, all right, in a couple years when he's eligible for the NFL draft, he's going to be going out there and making a big difference for somebody. And all of a sudden, you forget about all the quarterbacks that had very good years in the college football season. And on top of that, the discussion that continues to be had about this draft class and how it impacts the National Football League. And I think it's certainly going to impact the way teams draft. You know, you look at the Arizona Cardinals, who have the number one overall pick, of course, just hired their new head coach and are going to go with Cliff Kingsbury, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. But, you know, teams are not going to be so focused on wanting to get that quarterback with their first pick. And you look at a guy like Haskins from Ohio State, he absolutely has the ability. I think he's going to be a good pro. And the question is going to be, which one of those teams, maybe it's the New York Giants, maybe it's somebody in that sort of situation where maybe they're looking for a transition for their next franchise quarterback, would invest their number one overall pick in a guy like Haskins. And I think somebody's going to do it. But the question is going to be down the road, who ends up with a guy like Tua? Who ends up with a guy like Lawrence from Clemson? Because I think these two guys are going to be absolute stars in the pros. And I think the fear that exists right now in the National Football League when it comes to bringing in quarterbacks, yes, last year you had Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold and Josh Allen and Josh Rosen. Now, those guys are all expected to be pretty good. There isn't that quarterback that exists right now coming into that draft that's on that level. Do you believe enough in a Dwayne Haskins that, or Kyler Murray that you think that quarterback has the ability to be on the level with the guys that were just drafted? And obviously you got Kyler Murray, the other stuff that you have to deal with, does he want to play pro football? We spoke about it last week. We were talking about two sport athletes. Kyler Murray drafted number nine overall in the Major League Baseball draft by the Oakland Athletics. So now, you know, you have to, number one, see if he's going to be involved in the draft, see if he's going to be eligible, if he wants to be drafted, if he wants to pursue a full-time Major League Baseball career. That's fine. That's not an issue. He can do whatever it is that he wants. But if he wants to play pro football, number one, you also have to have in the back of your mind if he's going to be 100% committed to 
perform the duties of what's expected to be a National Football League quarterback. Because this isn't like the Bo Jacksons or Deion Sanders of years past. You know, Brian Jordan. I think of pro football players that all what they all had in common is that they were not quarterbacks. And you look at a quarterback in the National Football League, and that is the absolute coach amongst all players. That is the leader of all leaders. So if you're going to have somebody that's going to be a starting quarterback in the National Football League, you want to make sure that that player is absolutely, unequivocally, 100% in. And if they're not, if a guy like Kyler Murray is torn between wanting to play baseball and maybe he decides to do what Russell Wilson did, uh, kind of uh, taking the honorary task of being a pro baseball player, show up, get a couple uh, swings and some BP and some uh, you know PFP, and, you know in regards to spring training, that's fine. But you got to know if you're going to take Kyler Murray with your number one overall pick, which any team in the National Football League that looks at Kyler Murray as a quarterback, their quarterback of the future, they're going to have to do that and make that investment. But back to the national championship game, last thing I'm going to mention, uh, I think it was just really a coming out party for the Clemson Tigers, a team that was not given enough credit coming in. I think Alabama, yes, they were favorited, and I think it was expected to be a good matchup, a good back-and-forth game, a game that probably could have gone either way. So like I said, if you're a college football, a fair-weather college football fan, you're a little bit disappointed because you didn't get that back-and-forth action. You didn't get the excitement of that game that came down to the last drive. But you really saw a Clemson team that not only looks like you know, the legitimate national champion, and the national champion has won you know, the CFB playoffs and the national championship two years of the last three, a team that's not going to go anywhere, especially when you got a 19-year-old quarterback that you know he's going to be around at least a couple more years, and he's growing and he's getting better. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of the show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So you're following what's going on with the coaching carousel in the National Football League. Some teams uh, like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers announced that Bruce Arians is going to come out of retirement to coach. My quick point on that, this is a guy that, he, he's a coach, so coaches coach. And Bill Parcells was a prime example of that. He, you know, leave a certain place, whether it was the Giants or the Patriots or the Jets or the Cowboys. And the thought was, this guy has it in his blood. He's a coach. That's what he's going to do. Bruce Arians who was an assistant coach under Chuck Pagano with the Colts when Pagano was out, led the team to some prominence with Andrew Luck, went over to the Arizona Cardinals, had a couple good seasons there. The biggest concern with him has been his health. And is he healthy enough to handle the rigors of a long NFL season and everything that's involved in it? You know he's got the, you know, the acumen in regards to being able to lead a pro football team and do the job that's needed to be done as a coach. He absolutely has that. But the thing that you worry about, if you are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in this situation, is can he sustain a full season? Is he healthy? That's why they gave him the full physical. Obviously, he wants to get back out there and do it. He's going to bring Todd Bowles in as his defensive coordinator. And he's got a good opportunity in Tampa Bay. 
You know, they got to figure out what they want to do if Jameis Winston is going to be the quarterback that they're going to go with from an athletic standpoint, from a performance standpoint. He has all that. And the question is, is he going to be able to keep himself out of trouble? Is he not going to get suspended? And you know what? Maybe it's going to take a guy like a Bruce Arians to show his support and say, listen, you're going to be our guy. We're not going to, you don't have to worry about being benched. And I think that's something that did impact Winston over the course of last season. Some of it had to do with Ryan Fitzpatrick. He had a very good season. He threw for 400 yards in the first couple games, made it very hard for Coach Dirk Cotter to decide to bring in Winston after he was done from his suspension. So you're looking at a good opportunity for Arians in Tampa Bay. you got the Jets situation with Mike McCarthy. Mike McCarthy, if he's going to coach next year, it looks like it's going to be for the New York Jets. The Jets have, the obviously, the decision to make whether they want to go forward with McCarthy, and I think it would be great for both sides. McCarthy wants to continue to prove himself, 13-year NFL head coach, a guy that is credited for developing Aaron Rodgers, won a Super Bowl, wants to add to that legacy, has a chance with Sam Darnold to kind of take him under his wing. So obviously it works from McCarthy's standpoint. And the Jets, listen, they brought in a series of head coaches over the past decade or so that have been guys that are essentially getting their first crack at it. Rex Ryan, Todd Bowles. You know, you look at that and you look at, you know, your, your answer to that is, all right, if the team wins, you don't really care who the head coach is. But when the team doesn't win, you start to see certain patterns that aren't working. The Jets, I think, in this situation, need to bring in an absolute, undisputed, proven head coach if they're going to turn this team around. And I think they're in a good position to do that. They obviously have all that money coming off of the salary cap, $100 million to spend, you know, a top overall pick in the NFL draft, the third pick. So they're going to, they're going to have an opportunity to do a lot of good things. Why not bring in an experienced, proven head coach who's won a Super Bowl and take a crack at it? Put all your eggs into the center, of the, you know, on the table. Put all your chips in and say, "Let's go." You know, don't don't bring in a first timer or one of the court quarterback whispers. And that obviously segues me into the next thing that I want to talk about because you're seeing a trend set in the National Football League, and it's obvious. It's not like I'm breaking any news when I'm talking about this right now, this thought that everybody in the National Football League is looking for their next Sean McVay. They're looking for their next Matt Nagy. They're looking for that next coach that's going to essentially come off the streets with no experience as a pro football head coach and expect them to have that cohesion with their quarterback and with that to be able to lead their team to prominence for a long time. Now, can it work? Yes. I mean, I did hear Albert Breer yesterday. He made a really good point that maybe this is the year that teams have gone a little too far in in that regard to say, hey, maybe I could pull this guy from here, this guy from here, and make the number one thing that I'm looking for in my head coach to have that connection with my quarterback to do what some of these other guys have done. And with that, it might lead to a little bit of a reach. It might lead to somebody or a couple of the coaches that have been hired getting a job when they not, may not normally have gotten a job. And they may be in a job where they may not necessarily be 100% qualified to do what it is that they need to do. Because if you're a National Football League head coach, your number one job isn't to have 100% cohesion with your quarterback. It isn't to focus 100% on a relationship and a development of the quarterback. Yes, it's important. It absolutely is. 
but you're the figurehead of the entire organization. You're a representative of every one of those 53 players, every one of those 10 to 20 to 30 different assistants that you have on your coaching staff. So the ability to lead is not just confined to that of what you have between your quarterback. It's not just, hey, have a good quarterback, you're going to be fine. I think a lot of people are misconceived by that because you look at Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and a lot of people want to just assume that it's because of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady that the New England Patriots have sustained success for as long as they have. Now, obviously, the playoffs are coming this weekend. They got a home game this this weekend against San Diego. I'm sorry, Los Angeles. And, man, it's amazing. I, I continue to say San Diego when it comes to the Los Angeles Chargers. But, you know, they, they, they've had probably the best run in National Football League history. But it's not just confined to the two and out. Belichick is an innovator. He's a leader. He represents that organization. He has input when it comes to decisions in regards to what players stay, what players go, what players are brought in. And it's, it's a system that is led by the head coach. Now you're looking at, let's say, a Cliff Kingsbury who comes off of the USC staff. He was set to be their offensive coordinator this year. He's now going to be the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals. And you just want to make sure, if you're the Arizona Cardinals, that you hired the right coach. Not, not a guy that you just think is going to work well with your quarterback. I understand Josh Rosen's got an amazing talent. I understand that Josh Rosen has the ability to be a great quarterback in the National Football League. Some teams thought he may have been the best quarterback in last year's draft. Now, if Kingsbury can work out with Rosen and get him set to be that leader. Remember, the quarterback is essentially the supervisor, the leader, when it comes to the rest of the football team. Well, amongst players, there's no more powerful player on a football field than the quarterback. So if through the leadership and tutelage of Kingsbury, Josh Rosen can become that leader and take that franchise to the next level, the Cardinals made a very good hire. Now, I did. I had to talk about this, and I understand it's kind of rolled itself into working out to what it is right now, but the situation with USC was a little bit baffling. I mean, you're looking at Lynn Swan, obviously a Hall of Famer, great representation of what USC is, the athletic director down there, and I know they passed some rules in college football to allow certain schools to not um, approve their coaches to have interviews with NFL teams. And I think this would mostly apply for a head coach. Let's say, hypothetically, Cliff Kingsbury was the head coach of the USC Trojans. Now, if the commitment was there between him and the university, and the expectation was that he was not going to go anywhere else, I would expect or understand Lynn Swan deciding not to approve him having an interview for an NFL head coaching job. But let's be serious, dude. Cliff Kingsbury is going to be the offensive coordinator. He's not going into the NFL to be a coordinator. He's going to have a chance to interview to be a head coach in a National Football League. What gives you the right as an athletic director to deny the man an interview when it's certainly not a lateral position? You could dispute whether a change from being an offensive coordinator in college football to being an offensive coordinator in the NFL is a lateral move. It may be, 
And in fact, if you wanted to make that statement, I would absolutely agree. But common sense and conventional wisdom comes to the forefront here when you realize that being an offensive coordinator in college football is certainly a step down for what would be to be a head coach in a National Football League. So Lynn Swan looked pretty silly there. And if Cliff Kingsbury essentially had to announce his resignation just to have an interview for a head coaching job in a National Football League, that is completely asinine. And that was a terrible job by Lynn Swan if that's what ended up happening. Now, in the end, he gets offered a job in Arizona, so it didn't matter what his contract situation was in USC. He could have, you know, he could have had a very good lucrative contract, but if he was offered an NFL head coaching job, he's obviously going to resign as offensive coordinator at USC and, you know, obviously wish him the best of luck in the National Football League going forward. Just a reminder that this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you will find in no beer at any cost. Now I'm going to switch to Major League Baseball for a second. It'll talk a little, a little Mets right now. Because if you follow the last weekend, General Manager Brody Van Wagenen was pretty active. He made three trades. All three of them were on the smaller scale. It wasn't like he went out there and got franchise-altering players. He made a deal with the Milwaukee Brewers to get center fielder Keon Broxton. He made a deal with the Houston Astros to get corner infielder J.D. Davis. And then he dealt backup catcher Kevin Ploiecki to the Cleveland Indians. Now, the thought is, is Bryce Harper and Manny Machado are still out there as free agents. And they're still very, very impactful players that are available through free agency. And if you go back to what general manager Brody Van Wagenen said once he was hired as the Mets general manager, he said two things. There was flexibility in regards to payroll to be able to add. And he was going to continue to look for ways to improve the team. In other words, he wasn't going to make a couple moves and just kind of sit on his hands and say, all right, we made a couple additions. That's going to be it. We're going to run this roster out and see what's going to happen. So that part of it, I 100% believe that he's continuing to do. I think he's continuing to work the phone lines in regards to trades. I think he's continuing to look at what certain free agents are looking for. And honestly, in his first offseason as a general manager of this franchise, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I think he deserves that. He's had a fairly good offseason. Has he had a great offseason? No. You know, you look at the moves to get Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz and Jairus Familia and Wilson Ramos, and I don't think that makes the Mets a prohibitive favorite in the National League East. certainly doesn't make them a World Series contender. That being said, he's improved the team. And the thing that I would be excited about if I was a Mets fan is the thought that this team could very well be improved more than it is. Now, the problem is a lot of fans are stuck on Harper and Machado. And you can be. Listen, as a fan, you got the right to want whatever it is that you want when you're rooting for your team. If you'd rather see this or that, you'd rather see them spend, you know, millions and millions of dollars, that's your prerogative. You're a fan. You root for the team. That's what you do. So there's nothing wrong with that. That being said, do you ever expect the Wilpons to throw out a $300 million contract for a Bryce Harper or a Manny Machado? And I know it might kill some people to hear this. It's just unfortunately not going to happen. So the question is, are the Mets 
with Brody Van Wagenen as their general manager, happy with where they are as an organization? Are they ready to go into their season with what they have? Like I said, it's an improved team from what it was at the end of last season, but it's not one that should strike fear in any other teams in the National League East. They look like they could be a fourth-place team or maybe a third-place team. I, I look at the Braves, they're better. I look at the Nationals, they're better. I look at the Phillies, they're better, and I think they're going to get even better because I really feel they're going to end up with either Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. And if that happens, I think the tide's going to change in the National League East. And it's not that the Mets have to answer it's not like if the Phillies sign Machado, the Mets have to go out there and sign Harper to equate to it. But I think they could use the strength of whatever budget's been given to Brody Van Wagenen by the ownership of the New York Mets. And this is the part of it. Listen, if you're a fan of any team, not just as it applies to the New York Mets, but this is the part of it that's frustrating because, you know, the from the general public, they're never going to know exactly what type of budget a particular team has. Now, when it comes down to the fans, you root for a team, you want them to have an endless budget. You want them to have the ability to spend any amount of money that they need to to best assure yourself of an opportunity to win a World Series. And once again, from a fan's perspective, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with feeling that way. There's nothing wrong with tweeting about it. There's nothing wrong with... Uh, you know, continuing to mention, hey, this is what the Mets should do, or this is what whatever team you root for should do. That's your role as a fan, to want to see the best team possible. And sometimes it's it's like that person going on a shopping spree with an unlimited budget. You, you know, the thought is, hey, you can go out there and get whatever it is that you want. But then you switch it, and it's not a shopping spree, and you have to go with a certain account of, let's say, this is the only amount of money that you have to spend and to deal with, and then you realize that your options aren't as exciting as they were before. Now, the one thing that I was going to bring up, and I'm not going to mention prospects, because that's all they are. When you trade players that are in your minor league system, I understand the research is out there. We can judge players from a lower level and kind of compare them to some major leaguers and to you know, judge their abilities to potentially be good players in the major leagues, and that's fine. But I'm okay with dealing prospects for Keon Broxton and J.D. Davis. But I'm going to take it a step further and say, what if, if you're a Mets fan and you're bitching and complaining that the Mets spent potentially decent prospects in the minor leagues to get themselves a fourth outfielder in Keon Broxton and a corner infielder, to replace Wilmer Flores and J.D. Davis, what if this was the beginning of a three-step process that was going to get the Mets even better than they are right now? And that's what I want to throw out there. And, you know, the possibility that the Mets could make other trades would probably be contingent on another team's willingness to take on one of the Mets' contracts that they have guaranteed through the 2019 season. And I look at a guy like Juan Lagares, and I look at a guy like Todd Frazier, and I think they both could be impactful on the 2019 New York Mets. Both will be a free agent at the end of the year. I believe Frazier got an option for 2020. But if the Mets were looking to free themselves up some payroll, perhaps Brody Van Wagenen is on the phone with some other teams saying, listen, if you're willing to pick up the contract, we're essentially willing and able to sell this player to you or to give this player to you for you picking up their contract and expect very minimal or little in return. 
And let's say the Mets were to go out and announce a trade with the Arizona Diamondbacks, who, by the way, have a center fielder that's a free agent and isn't coming back. Juan Lagares to the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Mets get very little, if anything, in return, but the Diamondbacks assume the $9 million or so that's on Juan Lagares' contract for the 2019 season. And then Brody pivots and goes to the Cleveland Indians and trades Todd Frazier over to Cleveland. He's got the Ohio roots. He came up with the Cincinnati Reds. He is comfortable in that area. The Indians need a third baseman. Remember, Josh Donaldson did some good things for them at the end of last year. He left as a free agent, went to the Atlanta Braves. So the Indians get themselves a third baseman, and all of a sudden, there's payroll space that's there. And this payroll space, maybe they go out there and they sign A.J. Pollock to be their center fielder. And all of a sudden, you look at Keon Broxton as a fourth outfielder with Pollock in center field. And I understand Pollock does come with his injury history, but I do think that's going to drive the price down a little bit to maybe where it's a little more affordable for the New York Mets. Now, you look at another possibility. They obviously need to add themselves another reliever. And if they somehow jettison Lagares and Frazier and their contracts out, they could go out there and sign a guy like Greg Holland to be that third reliever in the back of their bullpen. Imagine Edwin Diaz and Juris Familia and Greg Holland. And I know Holland didn't get off to a good start with the St. Louis Cardinals last year. Part of it had to do with his late signing, but did pitch pretty well for the Washington Nationals at the end of the season after he was released from his contract by St. Louis. Now you look at another possibility, and I, and I do believe that the connection between Greg Holland and Dave Island is something that's very important because I think Island has the ability to probably get the most out of Holland, and he could probably work out a deal where imagine this guy just throwing up zeros as your third reliever, not your ace reliever, not your eighth inning guy. That bullpen is certainly better. And if you look at Pollock as your starting center fielder, you do have to count on him being healthy, but you do have Broxton as a backup plan in case Pollock were to miss a little bit of time. But I look at the Mets with Pollock and with Tolland in addition to the other players that they've acquired this offseason, and I think it's a much better team. And I think it's a team that could very well go out there and compete in the National League East and maybe for a chance to represent the National League in the World Series. And the last thing you, you, know, you look at you know, from a roster depth standpoint, I, I do expect the Mets to be looking at this free agent list and you may say, hey, trading Todd Frazier has you with Jeff McNeil and J.D. Davis as your corner infielders. You may want to add a veteran player. And the talk was the Mets were speaking with Mike Mostakis a couple weeks ago. They were speaking with Brian Dozier over the course of this past week. You look at fits that may not seem so good right now, but imagine if Todd Frazier was traded. And the last thing is if you're talking about information that's thrown out in front of the media, it would behoove any organization to not want that stuff to leak out. And if you remember years ago when Omar Minaya was the general manager of the New York Mets, the tendency was that people that were in his inner circle were leaking out information to the press. And if you think of Bill Belichick as the coach of the New England Patriots, known for not saying very much, known for not giving very much in his press conferences, especially as a game is about to happen. Now, a team would behoove itself to not want to have information go out as far as what they're expecting to do. I understand the media has got a job to do. The people that are receiving the information want to know the latest of what's going on. 
But if you're handling stuff behind the scenes, number one, when it happens, it happens. And number two, other teams don't have the advantage to know where your desperations are. Now, if it was known that Brody Van Wagenen was broadcasting that he's trying to trade Juan Lagares and he's trying to trade Todd Frazier, then very few teams are even going to look at it as a possibility. They're going to say, all right, well, how much money are you going to pay on that contract? Remember Sandy Alderson a couple of years ago wanted to trade either Ike Davis or Lucas Duda because they only had, only had room for one first baseman. Dylan G, a number six starter in the Mets rotation. He looked pretty good a couple of years before. Ideally, you would have wanted to move Dylan G. Now, when that stuff was essentially broadcasted, when the media was on top of it saying that the Mets are looking to try to trade either one of these two players, the other teams are like, well, listen, we'll take them for nothing, but we're not going to give you the value of that play. So just a, a, an interesting, I don't know, perspective in case this is what the Mets end up deciding to do. And if that's the case, good for them. Because I think if they end up with Pollock and they end up with Holland at the expense of Ligaris and Frazier's contract, I think they're a much better team now than they were a couple days ago. Just a reminder that Castro provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. This is the past ball show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, please let me know as we swing into the Nobody's Listening segment of the show. We're going to talk about something that's not related to the world of sports right now. And I, actually, I found a little bit of a tie to bring it up there. So it's going to start out by having a little bit of a sports-like feel to it. And I want to get into everyday life. So Cody Parkey, the kicker for the Chicago Bears, unfortunately has that double doink situation where the ball goes off of the upright, hits the crossbar, and the Chicago Bears lost a very, very close game on Sunday to the Philadelphia Eagles. And you certainly do feel for the player if they have a job to do and they don't come through. I remember Scott Norwood's kick in the Super Bowl against the Giants where he ends up going wide right. There was, seemed to be a lot more support there, but you know, you think about the day and age we live in with social media and the fact that you could get your opinions out there and essentially contact players and athletes and people in the spotlight through their Twitter handle. is something that obviously didn't exist in 1990. So I think about it, and obviously everybody's got a job to do, whatever your job happens to be. And no matter what your profession is, you understand that some people are better at their jobs than others. There's some people that are good at their jobs and have a bad moment. There's some people that just regularly are not good at their jobs. The same does apply to the world of sports. And I understand that we put players on this pedestal. We put them up on this level where they're almost superior people than the average everyday American. And all you have to do is have a chance to meet and interact with athletes and players and people in the spotlight and you realize that they're human beings just like you. They have good days, they have bad days. Now, obviously, what they're being compensated for when it comes to you know the amount of money they make, the opportunity that they have, the values that they have for the rest of their lives with their families, they have a chance to do different things than most average and ordinary everyday Americans. And I understand with that comes the expectation 
that their job, whatever it is, whether it's small, whether it's minuscule, whether they have the responsibility of, let's say, a quarterback in the NFL or a cleanup batter in Major League Baseball or a top player in the NBA or a goalkeeper in, in hockey or soccer, they, they may have a little more responsibility, but they're obviously being compensated for that. And this is why a lot of people end up getting upset over it because you know they, they feel like these guys, these players, whether they're male or female, are almost don't want to get the job done. Like Cody Parkey missed that field goal on purpose. Obviously he didn't, but he also has to be mentally tough enough to not let a kick like that totally change his life. And if it does, he's not going to have a long career in the National Football League. Now you could say, hey, he's an average kicker. He's an ordinary kicker. He's maybe not very good. He has a history for missing you know, a handful of kicks or a lot of kicks over a long period of time in the National Football League, and maybe he doesn't deserve a job. Maybe he shouldn't be back with the Chicago Bears next year, which obviously it would be a shock if he was. Uh, a, a moment like that really does signify a need to turn the page. But the deeper part of what I wanted to talk about here is that, you know, we do characterize people based off of what their professions are. And we characterize these people based off of how they're being compensated. And if you have the opportunity to live a lavish life or have an opportunity to do more than other people, your expectations are almost going to be that you should be perfect at your job. And nobody is. Even the best will have their moments. Tony Romo had a great career in the National Football League, but the early part of his career was marred by a hold on a field goal that he muffed and cost the Dallas Cowboys a playoff game. Now, he didn't let that define him. He had a very good career and obviously is an uh, analyst on CBS right now doing a very good job. But, you know, you look at the fact that a lot of people have, you know, don't have anything that they do that's put out in the spotlight. May not have that same type of pressure. You could say the pressure got to you. But the human element is going to come in when you're talking about any, any people. And Cody Park, you listen, he deserves some backlash. Chicago Bears fans, if you're, you know, you've been waiting for the last eight years for the Bears to get in the playoffs, you thought it was your opportunity to make a run in the NFC, and the thought was maybe you could get to the Super Bowl this year with Matt Nagy, and obviously Mitchell Trubisky as your quarterback, Tyree Cohen and Jordan Howard, the receivers there, you brought in Khalil Mack, you thought this was the one chance of a lifetime for the Bears to do what they did, you should be pissed off. You should be pissed off at Cody Parkey. You know, the guy should be able to walk in public, though. The guy should be able to go on with his life. If the Bears decide to cut bait with Cody Parkey, maybe he gets another job in the NFL and has a chance at redemption. Just a little recap of the show today. Obviously, Clemson, Alabama, great performance by Clemson. You know, you're looking at the quarterback they got, Trevor Lawrence. He looks like he's going to be an absolute star. Maybe teams in the National Football League will start backing off in regards to using high draft picks on quarterbacks over the next couple seasons with the hope that somewhere along the line they can bring this guy in. Cliff Kingsbury getting a job with the Arizona Cardinals as their head coach. Listen, is it a mistake? Could it be a mistake? It might be. Matt LaFleur getting a job with the Green Bay Packers. Down the road, it could be looked at as a mistake. Where are these guys' resumes? Cliff Kingsbury had a losing record at Texas Tech in college. That is his resume. Matt LaFleur, a couple, couple years ago, was a quarterback's coach 
for the Los Angeles Rams. Was an offensive coordinator with the Tennessee Titans. Now he's a head coach. Is the NFL getting to a point where they're trying to overcompensate for what they believe is the relationship between the quarterback and the head coach? It could work. It might not work. Obviously, the thought that Lynn Swan is the athletic director of USC could have barred Cliff Kingsbury for interviewing from a, for a head coaching job in the National Football League is absolutely ludicrous. You know, the thought that a guy who's going to be your offensive coordinator at a good school, and obviously it's a great job at USC to be their offensive coordinator, but to say that that is more powerful or more uh, of a job that you should hold on to than be a head coach in the National Football League is completely asinine. I talk about the possibility of the Mets maybe dealing a couple contracts and Juan Lagares and Todd Frazier to free up a little capital so they could go out there and maybe sign an A.J. Pollock or a, uh, a Greg Holland, and both. The one thing that I do have to bring up is the fact that the Mets payroll is right about on par with where it was last year. Now, you're going to expect some salary rises in regards to arbitration, whether it's a Jacob deGrom or Zach Wheeler or a Noah Syndergaard. And maybe the thought is that the ex excess in regards to what they're going over in their payroll may be used to give these pitchers the extensions that they deserve. Like, in other words, if the Mets payroll stood at about $150 million, and I bring the hypothetical scenario of trading Lagares and trading Frazier and signing Pollock and signing Holland and maybe make another move for, I don't know, a Mostakis or a Dozier as an infielder and call it an offseason. If you're around $150 million and then you use the rest of the offseason to sign Wheeler, to sign DeGrom, to sign Syndergaard, and make sure that these three pitchers are going to be in the Mets organization and in their starting rotation for the next three to five years, I think it would be worth it. And I'd sign up for that in a heartbeat. Cody Parkey missing the field goal for the Bears. Sucks for him. He does deserve some ridicule for it. He's got a responsibility to make the kick. And when you're in the spotlight, when you're one of 32 NFL kickers who have a job, your job is to make the field goal in that spot doesn't matter if you get iced before and the ball goes right through the uprights. It doesn't matter if the ball is tipped at the line of scrimmage. You have a responsibility to make that kick. That being said, you know, the to go ridiculously overboard and treat this person as if he's subhuman because he made a mistake, you may want to look in a mirror yourself. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. We'll be back with you Friday around the same time. We'll do some football picks for the, uh, obviously, the divisional round weekend. Um, some stuff is certainly going to be going on in the world of Major League Baseball. A little bit of NBA and NHL. And obviously anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. So God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.